What distinguishes narcolepsy type 1, type 2, and idiopathic hypersomnia? Can your diagnosis change? In today's podcast, I speak with Dr. Chad Ruoff about the latest research and perspectives on this topic. Dr. Chad Ruoff is an internal medicine physician specializing in sleep medicine. He is active in research and education and has authored numerous publications in sleep medicine on topics including sleep apnea and narcolepsy. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. The Narcolepsy Nerd Alert series invites listeners to dive deeper into specific topics relevant to living with narcolepsy. For more on this topic, please check out our corresponding toolkit, available for free on our website to download, print, and share. The link to the toolkit and other Narcolepsy Nerd Alert topics is in the show notes, or you can go to project-sleep.com. Welcome, everybody. Today, we're really excited to talk about types of narcolepsy, trying to better understand narcolepsy type 1 versus type 2 versus idiopathic hypersomnia. It can be really, really confusing, and so we're just really excited to have this discussion, especially to have Dr. Ruoff walk us through this topic today. Hey, Dr. Ruoff. Hello, hello. Thank you so much, Project Sleep, for having me. Excited to be here, and hopefully I can add some clarity and maybe a little bit of confusion to the picture, but hopefully at the end, a little bit more clarity for you, the patient and caregivers. So, you know, really today, we're going to be talking about narcolepsy type 1, type 2, and idiopathic hypersomnia. We're certainly not going to touch upon Klein-Levin syndrome, that is an entity in and of itself, but, you know, hypersomnia due to a medical disorder, hypersomnia due to a medication or substance, hypersomnia associated with a psychiatric disorder, these are the challenges in diagnosing and differentiating these top three. So while we won't talk about these, this is really what makes, uh, you know, coming up with a diagnosis challenging in collecting the clinical history and whatnot. Insufficient sleep, well, that's fairly self-explanatory. I mean, and it's certainly something we're, we're concerned about more and more, just not getting enough sleep, social jet lag, you know, not getting enough sleep during the week and then catching up on the weekend. And then the whole Sunday night, that's where some patients, people might in general have trouble falling asleep that night because they spent the whole weekend catching up on sleep. And so trying to normalize that sleep across the seven-day week rather than the two-day weekend playing catch-up. And then normal variants, but then long sleeper, this is another one. So long sleepers is if, if they're given enough time to actually sleep and, and can ignore the societal pressures and whatnot, they feel fine if they get that. So, you know, whether it's insufficient sleep that we're concerned about or long sleep, really the, the recommendation there is extend the sleep and see what it does for you. And with patients with hypersomnia, one of the really important thing, like with insomnia patients, we want to define that optimal duration where they're not spending hours and hours laying in bed. So that makes the perception of sleep worse, right? The typical thing, if someone's having trouble sleeping at night, 
is to extend the time to get to that magical seven to eight hours of sleep. With hypersomnia, it's really what I recommend for patients is to define that, that optimal duration. What is that? Well, it's where if you go over that, you don't feel any better, but if you go under, you feel worse. And that can be really important, especially for some of the patients with long sleep or longer sleep, trying to get by with maybe an hour less of sleep every day. That's huge to get an hour back. If you can really diligently do this kind of trial and say, well, I, you know, I, I usually get 10, but I think I'm, I feel the same with nine, actually. So that's really an important point. And the power of another hour during the day would be <laughs> invaluable. I was yeah. wondering too, where in the process of trying to diagnose someone with a hypersomnia, do you think that clinicians are considering other things outside of um, hypersomnias as well? You know, like other autoimmune conditions that might cause, you know, we always think of how it takes so long for anyone with um, these conditions to get to a sleep specialist. But at the same time, I have heard of some cases where someone ended up with a lupus diagnosis that had been missed for many years and actually got on treatment for that and felt that their sleepiness resolved. So do you know how much they consider other things too? I think it's important. And when I see a patient, I always encourage patients to talk about their fatigue, sleepiness with all healthcare providers and make sure that they're not missing something. I mean, I've had, certainly that, that can be uh, lupus, MS. MS has rampant fatigue, which fatigue and sleepiness, sometimes even with a person in front of you, when you're trying to dissect, is it fatigue or is it sleepiness? Sometimes it can be challenging. Yes, sleepiness is the tendency to fall asleep and fatigue is this tired, exhausted feeling, but not nodding off. But gosh, sometimes it, it can be challenging to tease those two apart. But yeah, I, I agree. You have to look for other conditions too, especially you know when we see the word idiopathic, right? Idiopathic means that we don't understand why you have this condition, but we you have this condition. And so this is where a lot of uh, medical entity, entities start is as a syndrome to place bins of patients that have similar symptoms and whatnot and study them and try to figure out, you know, make that, that pool as homogenous as possible so we can learn from that, that group of patients and then come up with like narcolepsy type 1 with hypercretin orexin deficiency, right? A robust biologically confirmed entity, but it, it, it has to start somewhere. But idiopathic, so just because you, you've been diagnosed with idiopathic hypersomnia, I wouldn't go through life saying, I'm sleepy because I have idiopathic hypersomnia. We just have to remind ourselves that it's idiopathic. We don't have a biologically confirmed understanding the pathophysiology underlying idiopathic hypersomnia. So, you know, if you follow those patients for time, maybe they would end up uh, being diagnosed with something else. Just keep that in the back of your minds moving forward. Yeah, I don't know if that addressed your question, but you pretty much answered it for me. So next thing, so what are the symptoms when I'm seeing a patient that might have uh, narcolepsy, IH, or just hypersomnolent that I look for? So I always make sure that I, I, I address all five of these, excessive daytime sleepiness, um, which like we already just talked about, that can be difficult to differentiate, sleepiness versus fatigue, kind of a spectrum. Cataplexy, and, and really moving towards defining cataplexy as, as typical versus atypical, which we'll probably touch on later. Sleep-related hallucinations, right? Hear things, feel things, see things as you fall asleep or wake up. Hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations. Sleep paralysis, literally the inability to move even a finger as you fall asleep, as, as someone falls asleep or, or wakes up. You know, this can be often misconstrued as this, a compression neuropathy where, you know, you're sleeping on your arm and you wake up and your arm, you can't feel it and whatnot. Uh, that's not sleep paralysis. In my experience, 
within a few seconds of talking to a patient about sleep paralysis, you can quickly, they usually will offer this up on their own that, oh my goodness, yes, I have that. The first time, the first couple of times it, it scared me to, you know, half to death. I didn't know what was going on. And then you ask about sleep duration and oftentimes they'll say, oh, it, it feels like it lasts forever, but it's probably seconds or they just have a very challenging time characterizing the duration. And then disrupted nighttime sleep, there's really no well-defined clinical criteria for this, objective or subjective, but it's just really fragmented sleep during the night. So struggling to stay awake during the daytime and maybe struggling, this is exaggerated, but struggling to stay asleep in a consolidated fashion at night. And then some other symptoms when evaluating for, for this is, of course, sleep inertia, sleep drunkenness. This is this uh, first thing when, when a patient gets up, there's multiple alarm clocks, they have trouble waking up, extremely groggy. The somnolence is, is definitely in more impactful in the morning hours when they're trying to get up. Sleep duration, long sleep, uh, normal sleep, and the restorative nature of naps. Sometimes I'll, I'll look at that as well. So what are our tools? This is probably, of this talk today, I think this is probably one of the more important just for patient care, advocating for yourself. So just know what's out there what, and, and make sure if, if you're uncertain about your diagnosis, make sure that you've kind of at least uh, engaged your, your healthcare providers to make sure that one of these tests isn't uh, suitable for your condition or your situation. So a solid history. I would recommend that a loved one, caregiver, uh, especially at that new first consult, always shows up with the, with the patient just to establish a rapport with patient family member. It just, it does so much for the, for the healthcare provider in hearing not only from the patient, but also a loved one, friend, family member. So that's just a tip, I think, that can really help accelerate your care and get things started. There's all kinds of subjective scales. I mean, they're subjective. You know, the classic one that probably every patient has had is the Epworth sleepiness scale. I don't know how many times I've had an Epworth sleep. The highest number is 24, right? How likely to fall asleep in this situation or that situation? I've had patients, and it goes both ways. They have an Epworth of 20, and I'm like, my goodness, you, you can't stay awake while reading. It's a three, high chance of falling asleep. Oh, well, no, I don't actually fall asleep. So they're scales. You know, they're not the end-all, be-all, but they're, they can be helpful. But what's a, a high chance of falling asleep for one person might not be at all for the next. And, and so they have their limitations, but, but important. Actigraphy, probably underutilized for a variety of reasons we won't delve into, but I think that we need to uh, increase our use in the, in the clinic of actigraphy. Actigraphy is nothing more than a, a medical grade, you know, accelerometer placed on the non-dominant hand typically and wearing it for one or two weeks, the longer the better. Sleep diary, just, you know, recording your, your sleep habits, what time do you go to sleep, how long does it need to fall asleep, naps, et cetera. And then of course, you know, a core part of the diagnostic criteria, the PSG, the overnight sleep study, followed by the MSLT. The overnight sleep study is really to rule out other conditions, namely sleep apnea, make sure there's a relatively normal sleep architecture, looking very closely to see if uh, there's a, a sleep onset REM period where someone might go into REM sleep very quickly. And then the MSLT, how I describe this to patients and, and other healthcare providers that aren't in sleep is all we're doing is a series of four to five naps, ideally five, and answering some very simple questions. Do you fall asleep on each nap? Uh, eight, 10, 12, two, four. If you do, how long does it take you to fall asleep? And if you do fall asleep, do you go into REM sleep? That's it. We tally that up. That's how we, we handle MSLT data. We tally that up and, and it, you know, there's diagnostic criteria for narcolepsy and IH. 
a blood test for LHLA DQB 10602. So this is not diagnostic. For the sake of this talk, I want you to leave today, or, or when you put your head on the pillow, just think that patients with classic type 1 narcolepsy, just think of them as 100% of them are HLA positive, narcolepsy type 1, because it really simplifies this discussion. So if, if someone has a concern for cataplexy, right? So typically cataplexy is going to be type 1 narcolepsy. And if we were to do a spinal tap, most likely they would be deficient in, in orexin or hypocretin. So if there's ever a concern as to whether this is cataplexy or typical, typical versus atypical cataplexy, which we'll go into a little bit, I'm sure later, this is a great place for your healthcare provider and you to uh, advocate. I want to get an HLA test. I want to see what this is. If it's negative, it really would side with the fact that if we were to do a spinal tap, that the orexin level would come back normal. So in type 1 narcolepsy, there's orexin deficiency. If we check orexin, it's less than 110. And so it's great if there's a, a challenging case trying to differentiate, is this cataplexy, is this not? So for anyone you know, with a questionable diagnosis of cataplexy, even in your heart of hearts, you're wondering, do I have cataplexy? I have this in this situation, but is it? My healthcare provider isn't sure. An HLA test is a great way to go. And, and then if it's positive, then you might entertain the idea of getting us talking to your healthcare provider about the, the pros and cons of, of moving to the next step, which would be an orexin test. This is finally commercially available. And so that's certainly important. Your, your healthcare provider just has to do a little bit of work to get it done, but it's commercially available. For the HLA marker, yeah. isn't it a, kind of a pretty simple blood test too? Oh my I, gosh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's so simple. So any um, sleep doctor should be able to do this, right? Unequivocally, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Widely so, available. Um, they just need to make sure that they're doing the right one, that they're not actually doing the one for celiac or it, it, it just said specifically, so at my institution, it's, it literally says HLA test for narcolepsy. So yeah, it's, it's widely available. There's, at least in the United States, there, this should be available everywhere. Okay. Just as I feel like it is, a, I know it's not diagnostic in, itself, in and of itself, but it's a good clue. And yeah. um, I'm yeah. often surprised how many people haven't, their doctors didn't ever look at this. And so I'm glad you have highlighted it here as something that a patient could probably ask their doctor for if they're in this confusing middle yeah, ground, I'm not yeah. sure. It's an important point. So let me, so HLA, it varies by ethnicity, but if you just go with say maybe 25% of the general population walks around with this HLA positivity. So just because you're positive doesn't mean, doesn't immediately put you into the type one narcolepsy bin, but it doesn't exclude. If you're negative, it really just keeping it a very simplistic, you know, algorithm, it really almost excludes orexin deficiency. So it immediately kind of makes uh, the narcolepsy type two diagnosis could make it more homogenous, uh, which is the goal in that if it's, if you're negative, then you're more certain to be uh, type two. Uh, it does vary by ethnicity. So like African-Americans, they have a high positivity, Japanese ancestry have a low positivity of this. So it can be clinically, it's very helpful when it's it's negative, if it's a if it's a challenging case of atypical cataplexy, and don't forget there can always be some psychiatry uh, antidepressants, for example, can can is a are a great treatment potentially for cataplexy. So you know it's it's always this uh, debate as to whether oh my goodness sleepiness started three years ago, patients been on an antidepressant for ten years, could this antidepressant be masking the cataplexy? 
And that's where this might uh, come into play doing the HLA test, but widely available. And if, if you're confused about your diagnosis, your healthcare provider isn't sure, that might be a great place, especially if there's questions of uh, cataplexy. One other question, why is the actigraphy helpful? I, I am just not familiar with why that would be a helpful tool. Yeah, yeah, great question. So going back to the, you know, the differential, right? So we want to look at insufficient sleep. We want to look for long sleep, uh, potentially. So it, it immediately will give us an objective assessment of that. It also will look at, uh, is the patient not getting enough sleep th- during the week and then playing catch up on the weekend? If the MSLT is negative and one of the, the, the core complaints of the patient is sleepiness and long sleep, they have to, they're sleeping long hours, then actigraphy is a way that you can actually sense, according to ICSD3, a diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia. So someone could have a negative MSLT. Their MSLT does not suggest a CNS hypersomnia, like narcolepsy, idiopathic hypersomnia. But while wearing one of these for two weeks or, or coming in for a, an ad-lib 24-hour, 48-hour sleep study, which is near impossible in the United States unless it's research, you document that they're sleeping you know, 600, 660 minutes on average uh, each night, which is a lot. So that's what, 10, 11 hours of, of sleep a night on average. But that's where it can be very helpful and it can actually lead to a, an ICSD3 diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia. But it's also used great you know, for ruling out things too, right? Is the patient just insufficient sleep? Are they all over the map, going to bed late one night, early the next, they they're, have this self-inflicted perpetual jet lag. They don't know if they're coming or going. So it can be very helpful. Diagnostic criteria. So for type one narcolepsy, what, what do we need here? So we need sleepiness for at least three months and the presence of one or both of the following. So cataplexy and a positive MSLT. So I inevitably will say positive MSLT. So what does that mean? That means on those five naps, on average, the patient falls asleep in less than eight minutes, less than equal to eight minutes. And on two of the naps, they immediately go into REM sleep within 15 minutes. And so we term that a SOREM, a sleep onset REM period. So less than equal to eight minutes, average sleep latency of falling asleep, and then going into two or more uh, uh, REMs on the naps. And also on the overnight test, if they slip into dream sleep within 15 minutes, that can count towards this. This number, you know, this eight minutes used to be five minutes. I won't go back too far as uh, historically all the changes, but it used to be uh, five minutes, but it was increased to eight minutes to increase the sensitivity and it maintained about the same level of specificity. Or a lumbar puncture to check for uh, uh, rexin or hypocretin. Sorry, we love, in, med- in the medical community, we like to have at least two names for everything. So hypocretin or rexin. And so that can be diagnosis, diagnostic for type one narcolepsy as well, without cataplexy. You don't have, because it's one or both. So someone could not have cataplexy, but have a rexin deficiency and be diagnosed with type one narcolepsy. Narcolepsy type two. So same thing, first thing, at least three months of uh, sleepiness, a positive MSLT. The overnight study, uh, it's always important to to have an overnight study followed by a daytime MSLT. That is the standard. So anyone out there that had them separate, that's a problem. And cataplexy is not present. And if a hypercretin lumbar puncture was done to check erection levels, um, it's normal or uh, more than 110. And the sleepiness complaint is better explained by something else. This, this is what Julie uh, talked about. Is there another condition? Are there any findings on the neurologic exam? Any medical disorder, medication, psychiatric illnesses that might be contributing? 
Is there a circadian rhythm? Is there a delayed sleep phase? Going to bed very, very late and then waking up, you know, later in the day, but yet societal pressures force those uh, folks or us to, you know, wake up early. That's the, that's the, the goal here in society, it seems. So looking for other possible explanations. Idiopathic hypersomnia. So again, sleepiness for three months, no cataplexy. This is the difference right here. So right now in the current diagnostic criteria, idiopathic hypersomnia versus narcolepsy is simply differentiated by number of cell rooms, a sleep onset rim period. So both narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia have to, on the MSLT, have to fall asleep on average in less than equal to eight minutes. But with IH, there's not a REM uh, propensity. So they have less out of all those five naps, there's less than two. So there can be one sleep onset REM period, but they can't have two. If they have two, then that would put them in a narcolepsy bin. So this is the really the differentiating factor between narcolepsy type two and IH. And the presence of at least one of the following, this is what this is to your question, Julie, the actigraphy. So Actigraphy, if, if the actigraphy watch, the glorified medical grade accelerometer, demonstrates more than 666 minutes, or you're fortunate enough to get a 24-hour overnight or 24-hour PSG polysomnogram. If you can sense this 660, this is according to ICSD3, can is supports a diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia. Hence my point that I don't think that we're doing actigraphy enough. And then again, uh, kind of the last number similar to the narcolepsy is looking for other, other potential causes that might better explain the sleepiness. So, so what are we left with? So we're left with kind of two things. We're left with narcolepsy, which we now differentiate between narcolepsy type one that typically can have cataplexy, but it doesn't have to have cataplexy. And if a spinal tap is done, they, they, if they're erexin deficient, hypercretin deficient. And then idiopathic hypersomnia, how I differentiate in the clinic. So sleepiness with narcolepsy, and sleepiness, brain fog. Brain fog comes up more in the idiopathic hypersomnia literature, but certainly this is not absolute, just kind of a, a clinical phenotype I'm just trying to paint here. With cataplexy, so we're trying to get in, I uh, missed an L here, but typical versus atypical cataplexy versus no cataplexy, right? So ideally with no cataplexy, that's more of a narcolepsy type two. And IH, of course, no cataplexy. The restorative nature of sleep and naps, more so with narcolepsy phenotype, less so with IH, right? So non-restorative, long periods of sleep, uh, naps are less refreshing, which in some instances, when you, when you get this history, it's like, why did you take the nap to begin with? Because they almost wake up worse off than before they took a nap. And it sometimes can last hours with IH, typically. Again, wake up feeling refreshed. The sleep inertia, sleep and drunkenness, uh, in the IH phenotype, uh, that's a, that's certainly a big one. They have a clue. More of the REM-related phenomenon, the hallucinations we talked of, the paralysis, disrupted nighttime sleep, that fits more of a narcolepsy phenotype. And then IH, more classically, there's no REM-related phenomena, but REM-related phenomena can occur in the general population. So just because someone has sleep paralysis does not mean, oh my goodness, they have narcolepsy. That's an important point. And depending upon the, the study you quote, maybe 5, 10, plus percent of the general population have experienced sleep paralysis and even higher with the hallucinations. So just because someone has sleep paralysis hallucinations and they're not sleepy does not mean, oh my goodness, I need to go see a sleep doctor to be evaluated for narcolepsy. But if they have those and they're sleepy, uh, then you might have something there. Comorbid sleep disorders. So in the narcolepsy phenotype, more REM behavior disorder, acting out their dreams, leg twitches, sleep apnea, 
in the IH, really kind of the, the, the cardinal rule is to rule out other sleep disorders. Because we don't understand the underlying pathophysiology, it's, it's difficult, at least for me, to say that there's, oh, in IH, there's this comorbid condition, similar to the narcolepsy type 2. Until we understand the, under, you know, the pathophysiologic underpinnings, it's difficult to say, oh, there's comorbid conditions. But in NT1, there's been plenty of comorbidities described and replicated obesity, eat, nocturnal eating, precocious puberty, psychiatric illnesses. And with IH, you just want to be, and narcolepsy type 2, you just want to make sure that, or I question that the comorbidities, they might be actually contributing to the clinical picture. So psychiatric overtones and, and IH and narcolepsy type 2. Autonomic symptoms uh, in the IH uh, phenotype. For some reason, a lot of the patients that I see have some autonomic symptoms and ultimately go on to be diagnosed with IH. So kind of putting these into bins, certainly I feel like there is a clinical phenotype when I'm seeing uh, evaluating patients for hypersomnia. But then ultimately we're left with the MSLT to uh, differentiate these two. Another important point, and I've highlighted already, in patients with narcolepsy without cataplexy, so this is type 2 narcolepsy, if they undergo a spinal tap, if you had the, the HLA, so you had a question of do I have type 1 or whatnot, or do I have atypical cataplexy, and you got the HLA test, your healthcare provider ordered it for you, and it were positive, in some publications, if you did a spinal tap, even though you don't have cataplexy, 15 to 20% of those patients have a chance of uh, being found to be orexin deficient. What does that do? Well, that then changes your diagnosis to narcolepsy type 1. And I, I think this is a, an important point to mention as well. So in this study um, by Andler et al., African-Americans were 4.5-fold more likely to be found to have orexin deficiency without cataplexy compared to Caucasians. So clinically, if, I, if I'm evaluating a patient with a CNS hypersomnia and they're African-American, I'm paying very close attention to the presence or absence or atypical cataplexy and really thinking about this after the MSLT is performed, that maybe we should be doing HLA and, and at least talking about orexin testing. My goal as a clinician is to try to pull out as much, yeah, just to, if, if we have a chance to do HLA and, and find orexin deficiency, we should be doing that to better define uh, these conditions for patients, family members, and for prognosis. So what are some of the MSLT challenges, the, the, over, the daytime study? So this is, these are the challenges. So the MSLT is positive for narcolepsy in, in the general population in six out of 100 men and one out of 100 women. That's a problem. So you run the test on a, a random sample of the general population in 100 patients, six men and, and one woman are going to be positive for narcolepsy, regardless of symptoms. And this is the general population. General population. This is not people presenting for uh, daytime sleepiness. They would they would go and remind us that would be falling asleep within eight minutes. Less than equal to eight minutes and having at least two dream periods. Wow. So this gets to false positives, right? So if someone comes in complaining about fatigue and their GP sends them to a sleep doctor and they just are doing MSLTs a lot, there is a true risk based on this general population data to have false positive, false positive diagnosis. Maybe this isn't narcolepsy. So to your point, Julie, it's always, you know, making sure that you're, you, if there are other symptoms, you know, delve into those other symptoms and make sure that there's not another explanation out there, like you alluded to lupus or something like that. And in the general population, the MSLT, so falling asleep less than eight minutes, that was positive in these studies in about 22% of the uh, general population. That's high. 
Remember, that's the diagnostic criteria for idiopathic hypersomnia, less than equal to eight minutes. And so that's, you know, if we just general population had 100 patients come in from the general population, that the 23% of them would meet this criteria. Shift workers. So and I use define use shift workers loosely. So if someone is having this social jet lag of being insufficient with their sleep during the week and then catching up on the weekend, that's essentially kind of a, a social jet lag is a, is a kind of a form of, well, at least a circadian, you know, irregularity. And so that increases the likelihood potentially of a, of a positive MSLT, 30 times more likely with shift workers to have a positive MSLT. Antidepressant use, 11 times more likely to have a positive MSLT, positive meaning for narcolepsy. And getting speaking to the IH uh, community, in this study, and they, they really uh, leverage the power of doing uh, uh, ad-lib uh, overnight sleep testing, you know, 24, uh, I think 24, 48 hours, 44% and 39%, two different studies here, of patients with IH had a mean sleep latency of greater than equal to eight minutes. And so with additional tests, a 24-hour sleep study, they were able to demonstrate a, a diagnosis of IH. But if that clinician, if their healthcare providers had only done the, the overnight test and the MSLT, they would have been missed. And so this is where in the US, we don't have the luxury of, of 24-hour sleep tests and stuff, yet um, actigraphy can be helpful. And in 71% of the IH folks with long sleep, 71% had a mean sleep latency of greater than equal to eight minutes. So on one hand, you have in the general population, 22% meeting this criteria, but in these folks, they're not uh, meeting this criteria. And so then over the last you know, five years or so, the another thing that's been called into question is the repeatability. How, how robust is this MSLT? So that if you do it today and then you do it two years, three years from now, does it end up with the same result? And so, I meant to say this in the beginning, you know, your paper and your work in this area is, you know, why we really wanted to have you as part of this discussion because of this research you did. And yeah. I think it's really helpful for people to understand because they're often like, how could my diagnosis change? And, yeah. um, and yeah. thinking it's just them and guys, it's not just you <laughs> if your diagnosis yeah. is changing. Um, so anyway, go ahead. But yeah. I meant to say and that. Prob- in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so probably I should have probably presented this other information after this as a potential explanation as to why this is, is, is occurring or why we, why we found this. So three different studies. So it's been replicated. Now, all these studies are retrospective. That is a huge limitation. So this isn't something prospective that I see a patient, we do an overnight test in MSLT, and then prescriptively we do an, a repeat MSLT six months, a year later, and see is the, is the repeatability of that stable across time. So a big question and limitation is why was the study repeated? In this in the in these data, but what we found across three different studies is that the MSLT in, in type one narcolepsy with cataplexy um, or hypocretinorexin deficiency, or typical cataplexy in HLA positive that blood test positive, it's pretty test retest the repeatability of it. Ninety one percent of folks that have a positive MSLT on the first on the first a positive test on the first MSLT they'll go on to have a, uh, another one that's positive. That's what you want to see, right? So when you when you uh, talk to loved ones and stuff about your condition, you want to say, yeah, I had an MSLT and it showed this and it's, it's a, it's a re- repeatable, reliable test. And if I did it in six months, it'd be positive again. That's what you want to see. And uh, in this other group, it was 81% likely to be repeat. If you did a repeat, it would be positive again. Whereas in narcolepsy type two and IH, it's not a stable phenotype. 
if, an, if a patient is rendered a diagnosis of narcolepsy type 2, they meet the MSLT criteria, they don't have cataplexy. If they have the spinal tap and their orexin or hypercretin is normal, if you repeat that test, that MSLT, it could change. It could go negative. It can switch to idiopathic hypersomnia and, and, and vice versa. Same thing goes with idiopathic hypersomnia. So uh, a patient has a daytime test. They're falling asleep less than equal to eight minutes. Six months, a year, two years, three years later, they repeat it. It'll be negative. And so this is extremely frustrating, not only for patients, but healthcare providers. And this is the biggest challenge that we face in evaluating CNS hypersomnias. The MSLT is our best objective test to measure sleepability, the, you know, the, the, the likelihood of someone's told to fall asleep to, to try to fall asleep. But there's huge limitations, at least in, in type 2 narcolepsy and IH. And so while I believe just clinically, my, my, my view is that there's a clinical phenotype, I think, with narcolepsy type 2 versus IH, certainly with IH with long sleep. The MSLT, I don't know if that's really the test in the future that we should be use, using to differentiate these conditions as we're doing today. So what to do, you know, if you have an MSLT and, you know, your loved ones around you and everyone, you know, they, they strongly suspect a CNS hypersomnia, there's sleepiness, you see it with your own eyes, family members. The question is to repeat the test or not. Certainly for clinical care and getting access to things, it can be very helpful if the MSLT wasn't what was expected. Uh, it was negative. It was positive for IH. Um, so this is a clinical matter. But from a research perspective or, or just a diagnostic issue, this is troubling. The MSLT is not a, a reliable test according to these three different studies here. So these are three different you know, research groups with different patients that, that came to this, this very similar conclusions here. So that's the challenge. So, so the real question is, you know, where do we go from here? So the most, most robust, like robust objective test we have is not repeatable, at least yeah. in this, this data here. And I feel like it's just not fair to patients to have to feel like you're going into an MSLT and just hoping that your brain goes into the right forms. And because everyone's experience is very real, you know, and yeah, um, their symptoms are real. Like you said, family members, it's, it's real. Um, and so this is kind of feels like you're throwing a dart at a dartboard to see if you could get an MSLT result that's going to be helpful for medication and coverage. Yeah. And so now some other explanations, right? So we talked about shift work that, that you know, has a high likelihood of a, of a positive MSLT, right? 30-fold increased risk. So that's why, you know, that we recently came out with new guidelines for the MSLT. And it's just so important that healthcare providers, but also patients kind of advocate and project sleep and everything that we're doing the overnight test and the MSLT to a T. So we're getting the actigraphy for two weeks. You know, you're bringing family members, caregiver, family member, caregiver, friend, whatever, loved ones to those appointments to establish that patient doctor relationship, that rapport, you know, visit one. It's so critical because of these issues. You know, some, some might argue uh, that we should be really diagnosing this based on symptoms, symptomatology, which is, is challenging because we, we really like to have an objective test to say, aha, this test is positive. Um, but that's out there that we should rely more upon symptoms, which having caregivers and patients and uh, family members and friends there is, is a very important in that situation. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we go to that, but just emphasizing, yeah, it's challenging. 
So where do we go from here, right? And I don't have the answer. So what I didn't show here is, so historically, right? So in like 2000, that's when it was discovered that narcolepsy in humans was due to narcolepsy type one with cataplexy was due to uh, orexin deficiency, hypercretin deficiency. So before then, you know, we had HLA, some of these uh, uh, HLA uh, findings that in narcolepsy with cataplexy, they were more positive for HLA markers. But it wasn't until 2000 where we were able to take these patients and say, look, aha, we have a biologically confirmed entity here. So now we can define this group as, as, as a homogenous group. So we pull those out. And my feeling is, and, and this can be debated back and forth, but that really the next step is to what to do with this these patients that have an MSLT that on one time it shows narcolepsy type two and the next time it shows IH and vice versa. What do we do with those patients? I think the first thing is that we pull, what, what else can we pull out? So I highlighted, so African-Americans, narcolepsy type two, more likely not to have cataplexy and yet have erection deficiency. Take those out of there, right? So be more, when you're, when you're evaluating patients or you're advocating for a loved one, keep that in mind. And then long sleep. So there's been some of these really nice cluster analysis looking at, you know, symptomatology and clustering. And it does appear idiopathic hypersomnia with long sleep. My belief based on the data is that that's a pretty homogenous group. So I think that intuitively that's the next step is to, to take those patients and kind of put them in their own diagnostic entity, which is why I think that we're not doing enough actigraphy, not doing enough uh, prolonged PSG overnight sleep testing to define that group of patients, capture that group of patients. And then what we're left with is this potentially is, in my study, I think maybe 30% of the type two narcolepsies, narcolepsy patients repeat, repeated both times positive. So maybe perhaps, I'm not suggesting that we do two MSLTs to define this, this strong, repeatable, reliable phenotype, but maybe that is a, a reliable phenotype where if you have patients with two positive MSLTs for narcolepsy, Maybe that's, that's a phenotype that we can study and learn from. So, you know, there's been other studies looking at, at these conditions using uh, or, uh, uh, tools like imaging. And a lot of the imaging findings in, in CNS hypersomnias are, are not consistent. And it's probably because we're not phenotyping these patients into homogenous groups. So until we can do that, we really can't advance the field, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, there's a few proposals out right now about yeah. what to, where to go from here, and we'll make sure that those are in our toolkit. And you know, the, for our nerds that love reading papers, um, they're interesting, and and I think we will see some change uh, when they do the next ICD international classification. Um, yeah, because it just doesn't seem right that people should feel like, you know, you get attached to a disease name, you know, like, okay, I figured it out. And these are already very stigmatized conditions. And then to have your like disease name change, um, it is a big change in people's sense of identity, even though I think from a research side, we'd say you're still part of our club, don't worry, you know, um, you're part of our community, your symptoms are real, you're having a real experience. And, Absolutely. you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be able to switch that easily, I think, on people just from a personal perspective. You did mention atypical cataplexy, and I'm not so yeah. familiar with the use of that term, so. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, the, the clinically, you know, I, when, I, when I'm asking this question, 
you know, does anything unusual happen with laughter, saying something funny, coming up with a witty joke? That's usually how I ask it to a patient. And typically, a patient that doesn't have a CNS hypersomnia, doesn't have, you know, cataplexy, they look at me dumbfounded, like, what in the world? Does anything happen? And typically, the jokester says, oh, no one laughs. I'm telling a joke. No one laughs. That's what happens. I'm like, ha, ha, ha. But the other thing that happens often is like, well, what do you mean? I mean, I laugh, you know, so then, so leading them, not leading them, you know, asking in a very unbiased basis is really important. But typically, after they're kind of looking at me like puzzled, like this guy's weird, some weird questions there. I'm like, such as jaw sagging, knees buckling, falling to the ground, those kinds of things. And, you know, in the, in the general clinic, you know, 99.99% say, oh, no, no, I don't get that. Occasionally, you might get someone that says, well, yeah, when I laugh really hard or something like that, something might happen. Like a lot, the, the classic kind of cliche thing of I laughed so hard, I fell to the ground, right? So that's a positive emotion, laughter, right? So there's negative emotions too, right? Anger, startled, scared. These are all negative emotions. So typical cataplexy is typically triggered by a positive emotion. So classically, laughter. That uh, is the right trigger. The duration is another thing, right? So duration, the typical duration is pretty short. And I, I'm not the one that should be talking to that. I mean, that's the, that's the patients that should be talking to you about that. But, you know, it's atypical for cataplexy to go on for prolonged periods of times, you know, hours. If, it, if that's there, then we like to hear that, oh, there's also, you know, shorter, short, the typical is a, a short attack. It's not typical to always fall to the ground, not to have any warning have an injury. So that would be atypical. It can happen, but it's not typical. And there should also be these more typical episodes triggered by a positive emotion. So the classic thing, short duration triggered by a positive emotion, typically, you know, affecting the neck, the shoulders, the head bobbing, maybe a little bit of knee buckling. And it's not so rapid that there's not time to, to prevent injury. It, it, it's almost, I always kind of equate it to like an accordion collapse. And so that's typical versus atypical. So atypical would be a negative emotion only, long duration, those kinds of things. Whereas a typical would be a positive emotion, you know, 10 seconds, short duration, yeah. those sort of things. I feel like I hear from a lot of people very subtle, even more subtle than the jaw dropping. People saying like a pop, like having to sort of pause, you know, and this is true to my experience living with severe cataplexy is that when I'm on medication, you know, kind of, those are kind of your internal coping is like, oh, I kind of just kind of like pause myself to not make it worse, sort of, or someone had described that they lose their smile. You know, they say, oh, you, you lose your smile when you laugh. And that's because she's having a hard time with her job, but not necessarily like dropping open. So it is really interesting to think about, I, I like how you present more from the idea of like, what happens when you laugh as opposed to going from the perspective, like, are you falling down? Because I think there's a lot of subtlety in many Absolutely. people that have mild yeah. cataplexy. Yeah. Um, I'd argue <laughs> personally that the idea of, of positive emotions being typical is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, I mean, um, I think that is because it's unique. Whereas, um, and I've talked to Dr. Scammell about this, negative emotions could cause you know, some sort of like fainting, other things. Right. Uh, and so the positive emotions are more unique to cataplexy, but I don't think that that necessarily means that they're entirely more typical. I know annoyance and were very early ones for me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just, if there are negative 
it's a more of a typical case that there's also positive. If there's yeah. only negative and that's it, that would be classified as atypical. Now, regardless if that's typical or atypical, if it's as as we know it now, it's kind of on the atypical, and that's where the HLA testing that we talked about earlier can come into play, the orexin testing, especially if if you and your heart as a patient say, I, I, this is cataplexy, then engage, advocate for yourself and, and, and go down this path of HLA, especially if your MSLT is negative, my goodness gracious. You've talked a lot about the spinal tab or, you know, the hypocretin. Yes. Well, there's a real word for it. What did you call it? The erexin or hypocretins? Uh, well, well, the spinal tab thing, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. used more in Europe now than the U.S. It's not obviously a comfortable procedure to have done. So uh, do you think there's any hope for some other ways of yeah. measuring uh, hypocretin or it would revolutionize evaluation and diagnosis if we had a blood test? But that's an important point. The HLA is not diagnostic, right, that we talked about. There's not really a blood test that diagnoses narcolepsy or, or IH yet. So uh, I'm not aware of, you know, any, any uh, developments in, in this space. Uh, there's nothing coming to us, you know, in the near future. That's for sure. Right. So do you think that, the, that we will like that there's going to be increased use of that spinal tab in the U.S.? So it's been part of our diagnostic criteria since 2014, right? So 2000-ish, this is how his, you know, uh, research unfolds. So 2000, we see, we find erection deficiency in, in, in humans for narcolepsy, right? 2014, it finally makes it into the diagnostic criteria. 2019, at least in the United States, it's now commercially available. That's great that it's now commercially available, but it took us 19 years to get it to where it's not just research, it's commercially available. Thank you so much, Dr. Ruoff, for coming in and tackling this challenging topic. I know it's a lot. Really quick, just want to, of course, mention the patient organizations because they are incredible and they're important and they have so many different great resources. So um, especially when you're thinking about hypersomnia, check out the Hypersomnia Foundation has so many incredible online resources. Narcolepsy Network, of course us, and Wake Up Narcolepsy has a lot going on all throughout the year. So check these out. International ones are online. Everybody, thank you, Dr. Ruaf. Thank you so much. All right, bye Thanks. for now. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.